Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis, and happy, as always, to have you here with me again. Great topic on the docket for you today, Sacco and Vanzetti, one of the most notorious murder cases in American history. But before we go there, I want to offer a shout-out to my newest NewsHound-level patron, Lily Disney. Thank you so much, Lily, and to all of my other patrons who joined not only this past month, but over the last year. It's such a great way to support the show and also get bonuses like early and ad-free listens to both of my podcasts fresh out of the gate. Go to patreon.com slash most notorious for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash most notorious. Appreciate it tremendously. Now let's get to the subject at hand. I'm grateful to have as my guest today, Susan Tejada. She was the editor-in-chief of National Geographic World Magazine and author of several National Geographic Society books and a former photojournalist and photo researcher. She is here today to talk about her award-winning true crime book, In Search of Sacco and Vanzetti, Double Lives, Troubled Times, and the Massachusetts Murder Case That Shook the World. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Eric. I'm so happy to be here, and I appreciate your interest in the book. Well, this had to have been a big undertaking, tackling a subject of this historical magnitude. It was. Originally, I anticipated it might take me four years, but in fact, it took me three times as long. 
Um, in part, that was because the trial itself went on, the trial and the appeals that followed uh, lasted for seven years. And so there was, to begin with, a very long trial transcript. Uh, the case had been much studied. So there was quite a uh, tr trove of documentation to go through that was already known. And in addition to that, there were other documents that had not really surfaced previously, primarily because they were released 50 years after the executions of Sacco and Benzetti. They were released in 1977, and most of the books about the case had already been written by that time. So those authors were not, of course, able to use uh, documents that had not been released. So uh, one reason for the length of the research was the amount of documentation. Another reason, of course, was I wanted to uh, track down as many people who were still living who had been involved in one way or another, if not directly, then indirectly, with the defendants or with their supporters, and um, so tracking those people down and traveling to interview them, of course, also was time-consuming. So I always love to set the scene right off the bat. So what was Boston like during this era, uh, circa 1920? The political scene, what was the status of immigration, Surprisingly, uh, some of the issues that were important at that time are the same issues that we find are important today. And you hit on one of the major ones, which is uh, immigration. Between 1880 and 1920, there was a great increase in immigration to the United States. And during that period of increase in immigration, about four and a half million of those immigrants were people who immigrated from Italy. And of that four and a half million, two million Italian immigrants came to the United States within a 10-year period at the beginning of the 20th century. So immigration was certainly a major factor. And it had provoked a strong backlash. Uh, Italian immigrants, in particular, were the subject of criticism in the majority of articles that were published about them in American magazines between 1880 and 1920. When we think of lynching, we don't normally think of Italians, but 47 Italians were lynched in the United States between 1890 and 1915. And, in fact, the largest mass lynching in American history took place in New Orleans uh, in 1891 when 11 Italians were lynched in a single night. Um, the situation in Boston was not dissimilar from the, the rest of the country. Boston was an industrial city, and particularly it was a center of shoe manufacturing and also textiles textile factories, and 
the majority of the workers in the in those factories were immigrants not just italian immigrants immigrants from greece from syria from ireland but a large number of them were were italians as well and a certain Towns in Massachusetts near Boston, in particular Lawrence and Lowell, were known for the, the large number of factories. And in particularly in Lawrence, uh, in 1912, there was a strike of laborers in the textile factories that was eventually successful. So. The situation in, in Boston was not unlike that in other parts of the country where there were large concentrations of immigrants and there was a backlash. So on Thursday, April 15th, 1920, a crime happens that sets this entire story in motion. What were the circumstances that led to two men to carry through the town of South Braintree steel boxes with thousands and thousands of dollars, basically unprotected? Well, that was payday in uh, South Braintree, Massachusetts, for several shoe factories. The men who were carrying the boxes of money were a paymaster and a security guard. The security guard usually was armed. Whether or not he was actually armed on this particular day is a matter of question, which we can discuss soon. But as these uh, two men were carrying the money across the street from one factory to another, they were ambushed by two gunmen who shot them, grabbed the pay boxes, and jumped into an approaching getaway car with three accomplices inside, and sped off. The entire crime took less than a minute. The two men who who were shot were the paymaster, whose name was Fred Parmenter, and the security guard, whose name was Alessandro Berardelli. Berardelli died on the spot. Parmenter was carried to a nearby home, and then to a hospital. He was operated on, but he died the next morning. The fact that the robbery took place on the day it did was of interest because the payday had recently been changed. It had previously been on a day earlier, but had recently been changed to this day. And the the bandits sped off and escaped, and... That was the end of the crime. The search for the bandits then began immediately. How much money was taken? It was close to $16,000, which was quite a bit of money then. It's quite a bit of money today, but even more so then. And this happened in broad daylight, right? And there were quite a few witnesses, too. This was in broad daylight, 3 p.m., There were some witnesses on the street, and there were several witnesses looking out the windows of the factories who also testified as to what they saw, but there was also some question about what they could have seen from from the windows. The windows were dirty. 
the distance was greater. And so their testimony was more questionable. But there were quite a lot of identification witnesses. In fact, when suspects were arrested and the suspects were Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, two men, although five men had participated in the robbery, only two men were ever charged and arrested. So the eyewitness testimony actually occupied most of the time at the trial of Sacco and Vanzetti. It didn't turn out to be all that important because there were so many, so many eyewitnesses that they kind of canceled each other out. But it did occupy a lot of time at the trial. What was found at the scene of the crime by way of physical evidence? The physical evidence left behind included a cap that was said to have belonged to Sacco. But primarily the physical evidence left behind was bullets. And the ballistics testimony at the trial was very confused. Forensics procedures of the time were not very advanced to begin with. In addition, there were charges uh, of tampering with the ballistics evidence. In fact, one policeman uh, said that, well, we thought the other side switched weapons, so we switched weapons. The chain of custody procedures were quite lax. So the ballistics testimony actually was quite important at the trial, but questionable because of chain of custody procedures and the uh, allegations of tampering. All right, so let's pause for a moment and and talk a bit about Sacco and Vanzetti. Could you tell us about their backgrounds and what ultimately brought them to the United States and what they were doing for work in 1920? Sure. Each one of them immigrated to the United States in 1908, but they didn't meet each other until 1917. Sacco came from southern Italy from a large family, and his father had vineyards, and Sacco left school probably around the age of 13 or 14 to help his father take care of the the vineyards, the agricultural property. He seemed to have quite a happy and comfortable life in Torre Maggiore, which was his hometown in southern Italy, but as we discussed earlier, there was a quite a big wave of immigration to the United States from Italy, and most of the people who were immigrating were immigrating because they were poor and they needed a means of earning a living. Sacco did not come from a background of poverty, but he decided to immigrate anyway, in 1908, because one of his older brothers was going to immigrate. This older brother had been in the Italian army and had been released after doing his service and decided to immigrate just for a sense of adventure. And Sacco decided to join him. He was 16 at the time. 
and their father had a friend who lived in uh, Milton, Massachusetts, who was engaged in the shoe manufacturing industry, and he agreed to help them. So Sacco and his brother landed when they emigrated. They landed in Boston, and they went to stay with this family of their father's friend. Sacco's brother, after a year, decided he wanted to go back to Italy, and he did. But Sacco liked it here and decided to take a training course in shoe manufacturing. He completed it and got a good job in a factory and really went on to live the American dream. He had a good job. He was good at what he did. He met someone he fell in love with. They married. They had a son. And things were good. Vanzetti's experience was quite different. He came from northern Italy, from a rather small family. He had one sister. When he was 13, his father decided to take him out of school and send him to do an apprenticeship in baking and pastry making so that he could learn that skill and come back home and work in his father's cafe. After he left home at 13, he really never lived home again for any length of time. So he was quite lonely in his adolescence, moving from one job to another in Italy and not working hard, very little time off. And when he was 19, so he'd been away from home for six years, he became very sick. Uh, So at that point, his father fetched him back, took him home to his hometown of Villa Faletto, which is near Turin in northern Italy. And uh, he recuperated at home. Shortly after he recovered, uh, his mother became ill and died. This was a tragedy for Vanzetti. He loved his mother, and he was so grief-stricken that that was what drove him to immigrate to the United States. He just wanted to get away from home. He he wasn't very close to his father, and he was grief-stricken about his mother. So he immigrated again in 1908, like Sacco, but he immigrated on his own and arrived on his own and had to find, uh, you know, his footing on his own when he arrived in the United States. He didn't have the same uh, support system that Sacco had, and he kind of rambled up and down the East Coast with, you know, as an itinerant laborer doing construction work, and it was only when he... In the course of his wanderings, he wandered into Plymouth, Massachusetts, where he really was the first place he settled. And he 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 boarded with a family there that he felt very close to, and he remained in Plymouth until the time of his arrest. You mentioned they met in 1917. Under what circumstances did they meet? In 1917, the United States entered World War I. This was fighting that had been going on for a few years in Europe, 
and the United States became part of the war in 1917. In May of 1917, Congress passed the Selective Service Act. This authorized a compulsory military draft for the first time since the Civil War. June 5, 1917, was designated as Draft Registration Day. And that by that time, 1917, Sacco and Vanzetti had each become affiliated with a group of Italian anarchists in the Boston area. Sacco's motivation for joining these groups seems to have been sympathy for workers who were being exploited, although he himself was not exploited. He sympathized with workers who were, and he supported strikes that were held for workers, although he himself never joined a union. Vanzetti had been working at the Plymouth Cordage Company, which is a, which was a, one of the world's largest manufacturers of ropes. He had left that job, but he still supported the workers from that company when they went on strike. So they were very sympathetic to the working men, and they found this group of Italian anarchists to be very simpatico, and some of their activities were purely social, picnics and uh, putting plays on. Uh, but, of course, uh, some of their uh, activities were political as well. And by this time, a prominent Italian anarchist from Italy, uh, named Luigi Galliani, had in, already immigrated to the United States, and he was living in Massachusetts. He published a newspaper. Sacco and Benzetti each subscribed to that newspaper. In the pages of that newspaper, Galliani told his readers not to register for the draft. Galliani was opposed to the United States' involvement in World War One, and he, he believed it was a war where capitalists would be exploiting the poor. He advised his readers, as I said, not to register for the draft. And so Sacco and Vanzetti and their friends in the Boston anarchist circles had to decide what to do, and many of them decided not to register. And of those who decided not to register, many of them decided to leave the country. Sacco and Vanzetti, this is the period of time when they met each other, during this period of meetings to decide what to do about registering for the draft. Sacco and Vanzetti joined other Italian anarchists who fled to Mexico. They didn't stay there that long, less than a year. Sacco came back to Massachusetts because he missed. He was married by this time. He missed his wife. They had a child by this time. He missed his child. Vanzetti came back around the same time, but he didn't go straight back to Massachusetts. He worked his way there slowly, stopping and work, getting factory jobs in Ohio. In any event, this was when they met at this this turning point in their lives to register or not to register. And their decision 
really would come back to haunt them at their trial, although, of course, they were not on trial for draft evasion. Nevertheless, they were asked repeatedly about their motives for doing that in a way that uh, was prejudicial. So this was just one of the many activities that the Italian anarchists were involved in. But they were also unafraid to use some pretty extreme tactics based on their beliefs in an effort to change the government, demolish the government? Well, some were and some weren't. Some, you know, Italian anarchists were content with publishing uh, newspapers. And in fact, the, uh, there, was, there were a great number of Italian language newspapers being published. But you're absolutely right that some of them were um, advocated the use of violence. In particular, Luigi Galliani, who published the newspaper that Sacco and Vanzetti each subscribed to, he did advocate violence. More than that, he published a kind of an instruction manual on how to build bombs. Dynamite was available, and he published this instruction manual on how to use it. After the war, well, the armistice was in November 1918, but the following year, in 1919, there were two widespread bombing waves that swept the country, and they were terrifying. And they were attributed to followers of Galliani. However, no one was ever identified, or I should say no one was ever arrested, uh, and charged with planting any of those bombs, which is not to say that no one died because one of the bombers died, uh, an inadvertent uh, suicide bomber, and of all targets, his target was the home of the Attorney General of the United States. At that time, his name was A. Mitchell Palmer, and Palmer's home in Washington, D.C., was one of the bombing targets. And the the home suffered a lot of destruction. No one was injured in the home, but the bomber was blown to bits. And when parts of his body and parts of his clothing were analyzed, there was some dispute, but it, it seemed to be that he was Italian. The, the newspapers reported that he was Italian. Later, he was identified, but long after the case had closed. So Sacco and Vanzetti were never known to have participated in any acts of violence. I'm not saying they didn't, but there's no evidence that they did. However, they did follow or admire Luigi Galliani, and Galliani um, advocated this form of action, which was called propaganda by the deed. Galliani was deported in 1919, right before these bomb attacks began to happen. But this also, like their draft dodging, as you can imagine, did not endear them to a jury. Uh, and definitely their belief in anarchism was 
also brought up at the trial, although, of course, it had nothing to do with the events of April 15, 1920. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Not that long prior to the South... Braintree holdup slash murder. There had been another crime in Bridgewater, and police investigating the South Braintree crime naturally connected it to the one in Bridgewater. How did they settle on anarchists as their primary suspects? Well, it's that's very in- good question and very interesting. You're right. On Christmas Eve, nineteen nineteen, in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. There was an attempted robbery of a payroll truck. The attempt was not successful. No money was taken, and no one was injured or killed, and the bandits escaped. That was December 1919. And then um, in April, as we've been discussing, in April 15, 1920, the payroll robbery occurred in South Braintree. Now, by sheer coincidence, on April 15, 1920, the police chief of Bridgewater, Michael Stewart, was taking part in an, in, an, in an immigration investigation that had nothing to do with either of the payroll robberies. 
the attempted robbery or the actual robbery. This was unrelated. He sent one of his detectives to, on April 20th, to visit the house of a man named Ferruccio Colacci, who was an Italian anarchist and a shoe worker who was supposed to have been deported two years earlier. He was released from that deportation order, uh, given a two-year extension, and he was due now again to be deported, and Chief Stewart sent one of his men with an immigration inspector to the home. When they got to Kowachi's home, they found that Kowachi, who had requested an extension again of his deportation, saying that he needed to care for his sick, sick wife. When they got to his house, they found that the wife was not sick, and Kowachi no longer was uh, requesting an extension. In fact, he was packing to leave. When Chief Stewart learned this, uh, he had what I call a eureka moment. He, he connected the dots. He thought he connected the dots. He decided that Kowachi must have been in on both the Bridgewater and the South Braintree crimes. So he went back to the house himself, Chief Stewart did. Kowachi had already left, was already on his way back to Italy. He shared a house. He, Kowachi and his family shared a house with a man named Mario Buddha. And Buddha was there. And Buddha let the chief in, showed him around the house, was fine, answered his questions. But Chief Stewart decided to go back the following day to ask Buddha more questions. Buddha saw him coming, and he left and went out the back door. Chief Stewart came back the next day. Buddha was gone. The house was empty. Chief Stewart decided Buddha, you know, Buddha knows something about these crimes. And Buddha had already told him in their interview, their first interview, that he had a car, but it was at the garage for repairs. And he told him which garage it was at. So Chief Stewart set up this sting operation to catch Buddha when he showed up at the garage to pick up his car. It just so happened when Buddha did go to pick up his car, and the garage owner notified Chief Stewart uh, that when Buddha came, he brought three friends with him. And two of those friends were Sacco and Benzetti. Sacco and Benzetti had met Buddha and their other friend at the garage. Sacco and Benzetti had taken public transportation there. Buddha and the other friend had taken a motorcycle. When Chief Stewart showed up, they had left, but Stewart was able to let the nearby police know, and the Brockton police stopped the streetcar that Sacramento were riding on and arrested them. The other two, Buddha and the other friend, whose name was Orciani, they escaped on the motorcycle, but Sacramento and were arrested on the streetcar, and that was the beginning of the Sacramento case. They had never been suspects up until that moment. They were arrested only because they had gone to the garage with Mario Buddha. But it was from that moment on that the case grew. You write in your book that things really started to pick up steam when they were being questioned. 
their English wasn't good. They didn't really understand much of what was being said. No Miranda rights, of course, at, at that time. They didn't think, at least early on, to ask for an attorney. And they lied to the police. And they got caught in their lies. C- can you tell us more about this interrogation? How it went? Why it went the way it went? And why you think they were lying to the police? Yes. Let me also just make one comment first. In 1977, when the records were released, the state records were released, um, that included the records of the interrogation. And at that time, I realized something that I don't think had been reported before because those records were not available before. Sacco had requested a lawyer. And during his interrogation, he said he would like to have a lawyer present. And Stewart just paid him no attention. And the next, uh, I, I'm sorry, it was, it was by that time, it was the next day, the district attorney paid no attention and just continued asking him questions. Sacco didn't insist. But he, that's just something to note, that he actually did request a lawyer, and um, that was not granted. Now, your question about why they lied, they said they were afraid that they were being arrested because they were anarchists. And this is plausible because after the bombing raids of 1919, the bo- I'm sorry, not the bombing raids, the, bombing, the waves of bombings in 1919, those bombing att- attacks were followed by what has come to be known as the Red Scare, or the first Red Scare, the second Red Scare was in the 1950s. So those bombing attacks were followed by the Palmer Raids, which were the Red Scare. The Palmer Raids, at the end of 1919 and the beginning of 1920, rounded up thousands of suspected communists, radicals, for deportation not for criminal trials, but for deportation. And so the fear of being deported was real. And when Sacco and Vanzetti explained their lies by saying it was because they, they feared that they would be, that they had been arrested for their radical activities and that they would be deported, it was, it's plausible. What kind of questions were the district attorney and the the police chief asking Sacco and Vanzetti during their interrogation? Uh, In both cases, particularly with Chief Stewart's questions, oddly enough, the questions were all about their political activities and not necessarily crime-specific. So... You know, Stewart didn't even touch on questions of robbery or murder. The the questions Stewart asked concerned anarchism. He asked Vanzetti first if he belonged to any clubs or societies, if he was an anarchist, if he liked the government, if he believed in changing government by force, if he subscribed to anarchist newspapers, if he received anarchist newspapers by mail, if he was a U.S. citizen, and if he had a permit to carry a gun. His questions didn't touch on the crime. 
they concerned a different offense, belief in anarchism, which was a deportable offense. When he questions, when Stewart questioned Sacco, it was along similar lines, and Nick replied in a similar way. And they both lied. They said they had not seen a motorcycle that night, that they did not know Mario Buddha. Stewart asked Sacco similar questions. Did he belong to any clubs or societies? Was he a communist? Was he an anarchist? Did he believe in the American system of government? The following morning, Katzman questioned them along similar lines. Although Katzman did ask some questions that were specific to the crime. But Vanzetti, for example, said that he had never been in Bridgewater, that he had never been in Braintree. Um, and later on, he said he thought they arrested me for a political matter. Sacco, as I said earlier, asked for a lawyer and Katzman ignored the request. He answered questions about his friends, his whereabouts in April. He said he had been in Bridgewater a long time ago. He said he had passed through Braintree many times. He said he had taken a whole day off in April uh, and quite a few half days in April to get a passport to go back to Italy for a visit. He said he had read about the South Braintree crime in the newspaper, but he didn't remember if he had worked the day of the crime or not. That was it. That, those were the questions. So it was a, a mix of political questions and crime-specific questions, which, you know, would explain why they believed they had been arrested for their anarchist activities. The line of questioning, in addition to the the raids, that had, the Palmer raids that had taken place earlier in the year, is certainly could, could explain why they believed that they had been arrested not for crime other than anarchism. Did the police basically focus on Sacco and Vanzetti and build a case around them, or were they continuing to look at other suspects during the investigation? I think you uh, you put it, uh, you described it well. Once they were arrested, a case was built around them. There, there was no attempt to identify any of the other bandits who might have been involved. The efforts were to identify them. So many witnesses were brought to the jail to identify them, including witnesses, of course, to the scene of the crime. And the results were mixed. Uh, some identified them, some didn't. Some who identified them later recanted. Some who identified them were challenged by other witnesses who said, no, he couldn't have seen what he said he saw because I saw him and he was hiding under a bench. So identification was the primary effort at first. And as I said, that um, that had mixed results. What was instrumental was the... Bridgewater crime had taken place on December 24th, Christmas Eve, 1919. And the goal, or Stewart's idea, was that both men had participated in both crimes. Sacco worked for a factory, and he had punched in and out with a time card. He had a 
good alibi, um, proof of an alibi for the Bridgewater crime, uh, which was his time card. Vanzetti at that point was self-employed. He was peddling fish. That was his job. And he had many, many alibi witnesses for his whereabouts on Christmas Eve 1919 because it was the custom of Italians to eat eels on Christmas Eve, and he was selling eels. So he was very busy on December 24, 1919, and there were many, many alibi witnesses who testified to his whereabouts. They were all Italian. They needed a court interpreter. They, you know, they didn't, they didn't have a very good English. But Katzman, the district attorney, made this very strategic decision. He decided that um, since Vanzetti did not have proof, as Sacco did with his time card, Vanzetti did not have proof of his whereabouts on December 24th, that Katzman decided to charge him and only him with participating in the Bridgewater crime. And he kind of rushed him to trial on that charge. So seven weeks after Vanzetti was arrested, he was tried for the Bridgewater attempted robbery. And he was convicted. And this meant that when Sacco and Vanzetti would go forward to trial, to joint trial, on the South Braintree charges, one of them would have a prior conviction. And and that may also, of course, have influenced the uh, the jury. The judge in the first trial was a, a judge named Webster Thayer. He had strong anti-anarchist beliefs. He didn't think that these anarchist immigrants should be in this country. And he uh, oversaw the trial, uh, the first trial where Vanzetti was convicted. By the time the second trial came along, a year later, 1921, Thayer, Judge Thayer, requested to be to preside over that trial. He normally would have been on a rotation, which would have put him in another courthouse, but he requested to oversee the second trial as well, including one of the defendants was the man whose previous conviction he had presided over. We talk about sensational crimes all the time on this podcast, ones that caused incredible excitement in the cities in which they happened. But this case would draw interest from all over the world, right? Not at first. It would go on to become one of the so-called trials of the century. And it was, uh, you know, a real courtroom thriller. But in the beginning, it only attracted local attention. So the Boston Globe covered it quite extensively right from the beginning, and one of the other Boston newspapers did as well. But it did not attract much attention outside of the immediate area for several years, actually. The you know the case went on for seven years. They were arrested in 1920 and executed in 1927. The behavior of Judge Thayer was attracting attention. 
after the joint trial in 1921 concluded with convictions, verdict, with guilty verdicts for both men, lawyers proceeded with motions for a new trial based on either new evidence in some cases or in uh, witnesses recanting their testimony in other cases. The way the court system worked at that time, all the motions for a new trial were heard by the original trial judge, so that was Judge Thayer. He denied the first five motions for a new trial. So Celestino Medeiros, uh, another prisoner in the Dedham Jail where Sacco was confined, in November 1925, he passed Sacco a note saying that uh, he had participated in the South Braintree crime and that Sacco and Benzetti did not. The defense investigated this confession and developed a a very detailed theory of who might have been committed the crime uh, with Medeiros. They identified the five people in the five bandits who committed the crime who were in the car and on the street in South Braintree. And the defense then submitted a motion for a new trial based on the Medeiros confession. A year later, that motion was denied. And like all motions, that motion had been heard by the same judge, Judge Thayer, who had presided at the original trial. When Judge Thayer turned down that motion based on a confession, that was, uh, that was in 1926, October 1926. That really sparked a backlash because people felt that the confession should be investigated that it wasn't right for the judge to deny the motion for a new trial when there was a confession and that this was judicial prejudice. And this was the beginning of of a backlash, uh, in, especially in the local press. A few months later, in March 1927, Felix Frankfurter, who at that time was a professor at Harvard Law School, he published an analysis of the case. Uh, it was published simultaneously as a book and a magazine article. And I have to say, I think that the Frankfurter analysis was probably the single most important factor in turning public opinion around. Frankfurter analyzed the way that the district attorney had, he claimed, suborned perjury and the district attorney had uh, twisted testimony, and and he also talked about judicial prejudice uh, on the part of Judge Thayer. And this analysis by Frankfurter got a lot of publicity, and that was really the beginning of what we think of as the worldwide publicity in favor of Sacco and Benzetti. But we're talking about 1927. That Frankfurter's anal- analysis was published in... March of 1927. So it was really just in the final months before the execution that this case came to the attention of the world at large. I should say also that from the very beginning, the supporters were uh, other Italian immigrants were, were contributing to the defense fund right from the beginning, as were 
unions, labor unions, those were the earliest supporters. There were also a few individual people in the Boston area of prominence who believed in their innocence and became active in supporting them right from the beginning. But in terms of the, as I said, the worldwide support uh, and the huge publicity, that was really just the final months of the, of the case. So a quick break so I can encourage all of my listeners who online shop to use my Amazon link to do it. Go to mostnotorious.com and hit connect to Amazon on the menu. Use that link and shop away. A small percentage of your purchases is kicked back to my show. Thanks again and happy summer shopping. Now back to the interview. So please correct me if I'm wrong, but the two things that the prosecution relied on heavily in going after these guys on the Braintree robbery murders were number one, eyewitnesses, and two, the testimony of forensic gun experts. Yes, right. When they pulled Sacco and Vinzetti off the streetcar, at least one of them was carrying a gun, right? And it's uh, really fascinating how the police tried to connect them to the crime based on the bullets found in the bodies. It's fascinating and it's complicated. Um, When they were arrested, both of them were armed. They had guns in their uh, waistbands. Vanzetti said he carried a weapon because, as a fish peddler, he was on the streets carrying cash. He was carrying merchandise and cash, and he carried a gun, he said, for protection. Sacco carried a gun, he said, and this was true, because in addition to his job in the shoe factory, as his daytime job in the shoe factory as an edge trimmer of shoes, he also had a nighttime job in the factory as a night watchman. The owner of the factory was his friend, and in fact, he and his family lived, they rented a house from his boss uh, on the same property where the boss lived. So he carried, he had a gun because he needed it for his night watchman job. Before April 15th, Sacco and his family were getting ready to go back to Italy for a visit. His mother had recently died, and he wanted to visit his father. Um, So they were packing up and cleaning the house, and he said, you know, his wife found the gun, and so he was going to uh, just go out and shoot some bullets in the woods and got interrupted because... The two other friends, Mario Buda and Ricardo Occiani, arrived, and they left to go to the garage, and he forgot to get rid of the bullets and the gun. So that was why they said they were armed. The gun that Vanzetti was carrying was a 38 caliber Harrington and Richardson revolver. The prosecution said that this was the gun that Berardelli had been carrying when he was shot and that after the bandits, well, after Sacco, they claimed, after Sacco shot Berardelli, 
they said, that Sacco took Berardelli's gun off of him and gave it to Vanzetti. Uh, the problem with that was that no one, no one saw Berardelli with a gun on the day of the crime. He usually did carry a gun on the day of the crime, but no one saw him with a gun that day. If there had been a record of Berardelli's, of the serial number of Berardelli's gun, uh, it could have been compared to the serial number of the revolver that Vanzetti was carrying, and a determination could have been made very simply whether it was or was not the same gun. But uh, there was no record of the uh, of the serial number on Berardelli's gun. Uh, it wasn't until 1977 when the police records were released that uh, it was discovered that there actually had been a record of a gun that was in all likelihood the gun that Berardelli would have been carrying and that that serial number was not the same as the serial number on the revolver that Vanzetti was carrying when he was arrested. Now, Sacco's gun is a much more complicated story. He was carrying a 32 caliber Colt automatic pistol when he was arrested, which was a very common, a very common gun, the all-time bestseller in Colt pocket automatics. When the autopsy on Berardelli was done, Four bullets were removed from his body, and the doctor who removed them marked them with Roman numerals, one, two, three, and instead of four, it was just four slashes. The contention was that one of those four bullets, and only one, had been shot through a Colt automatic. There was never any evidence offered about where the other bullets had come from, the other three bullets in his body, who had shot them, what kind of a gun they had come from that was never identified. So one of the four bullets from his body was said to have come from Sacco's Colt automatic. At the trial, expert witnesses disagreed about this bullet. And as I said earlier, firearms identification was in a embryonic stage at that time. The, there was great controversy surrounding bullet three, the one that was alleged to be from Sacco's Colt. Captain Proctor of the state police at trial had testified that that bullet was consistent with, that's the wording he used, consistent with, being fired from Sacco's gun. Two years later, in 1923, Captain Proctor withdrew his testimony and he said, in fact, he had found, quote, no affirmative evidence, whatever, that this bullet, that this so-called mortal bullet had passed through the particular Sacco pistol, unquote. In the final motions before the execution, the defense alleged that someone on the prosecution had actually tampered with the bullet. This was never proven, but... The debate over bullet three really does not have a satisfactory conclusion. 
Tests were conducted on that bullet over at various times over a period of several years. Uh, they were inconclusive. Does the gun still exist? Could could modern day ballistics technology help come up with a definitive conclusion? That's a good question, and I don't know the answer uh, in fact, but. The tests that were conducted over a period of time, the most recent one was in 1983. So that's somewhat recent, I guess, uh, compared to the time of the crime. And the bullets had aged. And, well, basically, I I don't know if, if, if modern technology could answer the question. But there was even some uh, question about whether the bullets had been, whether the prosecution had substituted one bullet for another. In other words, there was an allegation that during a test firing that took place at the request of the defense, that the bullets had been test fired through Sacco's gun. And there was an allegation that the prosecution had taken one of those bullets that had been test fired through Sacco's gun and substituted it for bullet three. And that was based on the fact that the marking three on that bullet seemed to be different from the markings on the other bullets. So I don't know if you could trust the legitimacy of the evidence. As I said, the chain of custody procedures at the time were were very lax. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So as you've said, they were found guilty. And then came the appeals years of appeals, and and during this time, they sat in prison, stewing, um, full of despair, anger, and the public outrage at their impending execution grew as well. But still, they were killed. Did you find in your research that at any point in the appeal process, there was a missed opportunity to get things reversed? Well, first, I'd like to talk about something you mentioned at the beginning of the question, which was their time in prison. Sacco was more, even though he was in a better prison, in a better location, he was racked by misery in prison. He, you know, he missed his family. He missed his son. He missed the daughter who had been born after his arrest. His wife was pregnant when he was arrested. And um, he actually had, I would call it a nervous breakdown in prison. And, you know, he was hallucinating. And eventually he was uh, sent to first one and then another psychiatric hospital where he didn't really get any kind of psychiatric treatment. And he, you know, remained under guard in the hospital. But uh, particularly at the second hospital, um, he was allowed to work outdoors. And he he seemed to recover. And and when he went back to prison um, after a few months, he was resigned to his fate and didn't expect any clemency. Vanzetti's experience in prison was somewhat paradoxical he he was confined in one of the worst prisons that shortly thereafter was raised uh, it was you know it was considered unfit for humans uh, because it was so old and filthy what prison was that Charlestown State Prison okay on the other hand he was freed for maybe the first time in his life from uh, having to kind of support himself. Of course, he still worked in prison industries, but the rest of his time was his own. And he had been uh, taken out of school at a very early age by his father. And he was a person who really loved to learn and loved to read. And in prison, he had the time to do that in the evenings and on Sunday, and friends brought him books. And uh, in a way, he had 
a kind of an intellectual awakening in prison. So it's very paradoxical that, you know, he became both imprisoned and freed, in a way, simultaneously. As far as uh, whether the any hope that the decision might be reversed, yes, I think there was hope until almost the end. The execution was uh, originally, they were scheduled for early August 1927, August 10th. And there was pressure on Governor Fuller of Massachusetts to uh, appoint the commission to review the case. And he did. He appointed a three-man commission of academics to review the case. And independently, he himself also reviewed the case. And during this time, there was hope that the uh, these reviews would result in some kind of change, either clemency or perhaps at least changing the sentence to life imprisonment so that they could, there would be more time to prove their innocence. But neither the advisory commission that Fuller appointed nor Fuller himself recommended uh, any change. They recommended no change. And so the hopes that lasted for so long that something would be changed for for the better, those hopes uh, were dashed. And there were a lot of celebrities, right, that that petitioned for their release. Albert Einstein, H.G. Wells. There were people of the day who did petition for for their freedom or for at least clemency. One of them, uh, surprisingly enough, was Henry Ford. Uh, Henry Ford did not believe in capital punishment, and he asked that the decision be changed. What do you think happened on that day in 1920? Who Who do you think killed those men during that robbery? I believe that the Celestino Medeiros confession was accurate. And when the defense investigated that confession, because Medeiros did not want to implicate others in it, so he didn't provide the names, but the defense was able to investigate and determine, according to their theory, that the people who had committed the crime was a gang of Italian mobsters based in Providence, Rhode Island, led by a man named Joe Morelli. Joe Morelli looked so much like Sacco that when people, when eyewitnesses were being interviewed at the beginning, people, it wouldn't have been at the beginning, it would have been later on, when people were shown a photograph of Joe Morelli, they thought it was, Sacco. They identified it as Sacco. They, Joe Mor- the resemblance was that strong. So it was Joe Morelli and his brothers. Why? That's why it was called the Morelli Gang, and some other uh, accomplices. And when I read this theory, it resonated with me for uh, a personal reason. I'm from Providence, Rhode Island, and the 
this gang was also from Providence, Rhode Island. So I found it interesting. Okay, fine. Later on, when I was researching for the epilogue and wanted to uh, include information on the victims, the victims being Fred Parmenter and Alessandro Berardelli, I went to great lengths to, because I needed to, it was the only way to find the information, to learn about uh, Berardelli. And what I found out was that he had immigrated to this country with his older sister when he was quite young. I think he was maybe 14 years old. His sister was like 20, 21 years old. And his sister, and they went to Providence, Rhode Island. His sister married a, a man in Providence and lived in Providence. And Berardelli lived with them until he became older and went out on his own to learn a trade. He first became a barber. He was a barber for a few years before he became um, a security guard. I speculate that somewhere along the way in Providence, Berardelli had become acquainted with members of the Morelli gang. Berardelli's brother-in-law his, uh, owned a, a, a bar and tavern in the Italian section of Providence. So it's certainly possible that they cross paths there or elsewhere. And I think that the so the Morelli gang they were they were already you know they'd been in prison they had been convicted they they were they were professional criminals and they particularly robbed uh, shoe factories uh, when sh- when shoe factory shipments were sent uh, by train to Providence they had spotters uh, to tell them which car- which train cars the merchandise was on and then they sent it to New York to fence it in any event. I think that if the Morellis committed the crime uh, and wanted to, were planning to commit this crime, and they knew that Berardelli, their acquaintance, uh, probably just a passing acquaintance from Providence, worked there, worked at the at the shoe factory in South Braintree. I think that they forced him to give them inside information about the the payroll day, which had recently been changed. I think they had arranged with him that he would not carry a weapon. They seemed to be sure that no one would return fire. And I think Medeiros, when he was interviewed by the defense attorneys, that was one of the things that he told them, that the the gangsters who committed the crime knew that they wouldn't be challenged, that no one would return fire. And I think that they they threatened Berardelli somehow, that if he didn't cooperate and give him this information, give them this information that they wanted, they threatened him or his family. His daughter, he had a son and a daughter. His daughter at that time was uh, in the hospital with scarlet fever. His behavior on the day before the crime and the day of the crime was very odd. His wife would testify. Uh, he was very nervous. He went to bed early. He didn't eat. He kissed her goodbye. He told her to take care of everything. 
He told her he thought everything would be okay. She didn't know what he was talking about. And I think they coerced him into giving them inside information, and then they betrayed him uh, by killing him so he wouldn't be able to ever identify them. So I can't prove this. This is speculation, but uh, it fits in with so many of the facts that we do know that that's my belief. Interesting. One last question for you. Oh, I could, I could talk about it forever. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> you came across documents during your research that hadn't been used by authors up to that point. Is there any particular piece of information that you uncovered that you think changes the way the case should be viewed? Well, I was surprised to find so much, I won't call it new information, but I'll call it previously undiscovered information. I was surprised. I didn't expect to find a lot of that because the case had been so extensively studied. But in fact, there was in part, as I said earlier, because some information wasn't released until 1977. So I I felt that the uh, building the biography of Alessandro Berardelli was, for me, it was amazing. Uh, I, I, to me, he is one of the most fascinating characters in the entire story. And, you know, it's, it's a big story. This is a story with everything. You know, it's a story. It's a story of murder. It's a story of mystery. Uh, but Berardelli, um, what I was able to find was, it, well, it took a lot of research, so that was also kind of fun. I, it was like detective work. But I found that he had, that his wife, he had married his wife, uh, and uh, she it was a very uh, unusual marriage for the time. He was an immigrant. He was a Roman Catholic immigrant from Italy, and she was a Jewish immigrant from Russia. He spoke Italian. She spoke Yiddish. And they had met and fallen in love. They had two children. And and I I think, judging by the... When I finally tra- tracked down where he was buried... It, it, it appeared that he had at some point in his life converted to Judaism because he is buried in a, the, his wife's family plot in Connecticut. And um, his gravestone inscription is in Hebrew and English, but the Hebrew uh, name is Abraham, son of Abraham, which is a name that's typically given to a convert. So I just thought that was touching and fascinating and then to learn about his behavior, his odd behavior, you know, before and on the day of the crime, and to learn about his early life when he immigrated and when he lived in Providence with his sister and brother-in-law, it was, to me, it was, it just added a a real different dimension to the story. Um, I guess the other things that I found out that, I hadn't seen reported previously were the smaller facts. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that Sacco had requested a lawyer 
during his initial interrogation. That was, to me, that was kind of a bombshell, but I hadn't, you know, heard of that previously. In Vanzetti's case, I learned that both men, in their each in their different prison, received English lessons uh, once a week from a tutor, and the tutors who visited them were members of the um, nascent American Civil Liberties Union, and they were each one of them was a woman. Um, the the woman who tutored Vanzetti at Charlestown. State Prison, I believe based on a note that he wrote her in invisible ink that I was able to make visible by putting it under a black light reader in the Boston Public Library, he had fallen in love with her. And um, that was fascinating to me because there had been on the record several statements by people who knew him that he had never been interested in women and he never had a girlfriend and he, et cetera, et cetera, several uh, comments along those lines. But he he admired this woman greatly, and I believe based on the, the note that he wrote her, which she never read, that he had fallen in love with her. I say she never read it because it was in invisible ink and if once invisible ink has been made visible by heating it, it remains visible. And this uh, note was still invisible, so it was only by putting it under black light that it, you know, became visible. I, I'd say one uh, one other thing that um, about the lawyer who defended, who was the first defense attorney for Sacco and Vanzetti. His name was Fred Moore, and he had been a labor lawyer prior to taking on this criminal case. He had been a labor lawyer for many years. In fact, he had represented the industrial workers of the world, which was a very militant, radical labor union. And he had had some great success uh, on cases for the IWW in the past, but in... 1919, and after the war, after the war ended, in the armistice in 1918, he he was not being very successful. He was losing cases, and he was losing cases by inattention and failing to file documents in time. And eventually, he was fired. The IWW fired him, and just a few months after he was uh, fired by the IWW, he was recommended to the Sacco-Vanzetti Defense Committee. They hired him, and he was represented them. So the people who hired him for the Defense Committee, they didn't know that he had just been fired. And he was responsible for politicizing the case. If the Defense Committee had gone with a an establishment lawyer right from the beginning, things might have turned out so differently. The judge might not have been so antagonistic. He couldn't stand Fred Moore. And, well, we'll never know if it would have turned out differently or not. But Moore is responsible for politicizing the case right from the beginning. And finding out that uh, about his firing uh, was a big surprise to me as well. So this book is available pretty much everywhere books are sold, right? And you have a website 
too with with more information yes i hope I hope they do read the book uh, I think it because i I've gone to a great effort with the research to use primary sources. And the reason for that is to be able to tell the story as much as possible in the first person so that the reader will be, I hope, feel he is in the courtroom or in the prison or in the death chamber. And, you know, I I, I hope that I succeeded at least in part in making it come alive. I would say, yes, I do have a website. It's SusanTejada.com. That's S-U-S-A-N-T-E-J-A-D-A dot com. And uh, if uh, your listeners are interested, they can go to the website and read the first chapter, which is part of it. They can also, if they are teachers, for example, they can also uh, find a discussion guide on the website. And uh, if they are interested, they can also hear... Uh, videos, uh, watch videos, and hear um, discussions of the book on the website. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. I Do I have, if I may just add one more thing, I, it just uh, before, we, before we end this, and I sure. appreciate your interest greatly. Uh, I would just like to uh, say that when Felix Frankfurter wrote his analysis of the case, he began it in this way. He said, this is no ordinary case of robbery and murder. More issues are involved in it than the lives of two men. And he he was right. And what I think is makes this uh, good reading today, in 2019, is that so many of the issues that are, we are wrestling with today are the same issues that haunted this case. Um, and I'm referring to immigration reform, which, of course, is obviously still a huge issue in this country. Um, I'm referring also to how a country can handle the opposing concepts of civil liberties and homeland security, which was a factor in this case, and it's you know still something we grapple with today. The issue of wrongful convictions has been something that I think all of us have become more aware of uh, ever since DNA evidence has proved you know many cases of wrongful convictions. And I, I would say finally that. You know, this case was marked by a polarization of, for lack of more specific terms, I'll call them, I'll I'll call it liberalism and conservatism. And this, too, is a fault line that we are on the on the precipice of today as well. So I think the 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 case has its interest as as a courtroom thriller and a true crime drama. It also has a, a historical interest as uh, some as a background for where we are today. Well, that's a great summary of everything important about this case. Thank you again. Well, thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. Again, I've been speaking to Susan Tejada, and we've been talking about In Search of Sacco and Benzetti, 
double lives, troubled times, and the Massachusetts murder case that shook the world. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.